quote, America is deeply divided. Our politics is broken, marked by anger, contempt, and distrust. We must acknowledge that reality, but not lose historical perspective. It's bad now, but it's been worse before, and not only during the Civil War, unquote. These are the words of Karl Rove, a longtime political consultant. He wrote them under the headline, America is often a nation divided, in a recent Saturday edition of the Wall Street Journal. The piece is historical, starts back when the country began. Karl Rove, in your opinion piece in the late August in the Wall Street Journal, a big piece, you say that our politics is broken. Explain what you mean by that. Well, we're in a tribal moment. Uh, the two political parties are at each other's throats. Uh, cooperation, even on minor things, is virtually impossible. Uh, each party's members hate the other party more than they love their own. Uh, and both parties are finding themselves fragmented and divided. Uh, the Democratic Party uh, papers it over a little bit better than the Republicans, but there nonetheless is a deep disagreement between the left of the Democratic Party and more traditional Democrats. And there is a uh, problem inside the Republican Party between the very conservative uh, sort of Freedom Caucus types and more traditional Republicans and a big battle over the future of the, de of the Republican Party. Are we going to be a more traditional conservative party or a populist party? And all of these things conspire to make our politics deeply divided, enormously divisive, and uh, narrowly divided. Uh, you saw it in the 2020 presidential race where uh, the election was decided in three states by a grand total of 43,000 votes, 160 million people plus vote. But um, nonetheless, it's uh, narrowly divided. This piece in the journal is unusual for you. You write for them, of course. A regular column, but this was a long piece on a Saturday morning. What led to you going through the history of a divided country? Well, I'd happened to give a speech on this subject, uh, and it just so happened that my editor, uh, Paul Jugo, uh, the editor of the editorial page, happened to be in the audience. So I gave the speech on a Friday, and the following Monday, I summoned my courage to call him to say, is there any chance at all that you'd uh, be open to me taking my speech and turning it into a long-form piece for the weekend paper. Uh, I, I thought the speech uh, was seemingly well-received, and Paul seemed to be nodding in agreement during par parts of it. But nonetheless, it was an unusual request from me who gets to, to turn in 750 words on Wednesday to be published on Thursday to think about a long-form piece. But before I could ask him, he said, is there any chance you'd be willing to take your Friday speech and turn it into a long-form piece? And I said, absolutely. I'd be, I'd be thrilled and honored to do so. Well, back off that a bit. And when did you think about even giving a speech on this subject? What, what triggered it? Well, I was asked to give a speech uh, on, on the state of American politics, and actually I had sort of dabbled in this, and some of the points that I made in my speech, I had dabbled in them for a number of years. Some of them come from the Gilded Age, which uh, I, I studied um, as I wrote a book about uh, the uh, realignment election of 1896, the election of William McKinley, which political scientists study and have studied for decades, but they study it as a uh, a story of anonymous big forces coursing through the American economy and society. And I wanted to write it as a titanic battle between two men uh, and the ideas that they represented, which it was. And uh, anyway, the, the more I stud st studied 
1896. And the more I understood, I needed to understand the era. And you want to talk about a broken politics. Look at the quarter of a century uh, between 1874 and the early 1900s. I mean, the Democrats take control of the U.S. House of Representatives in 1874 for the first time in 18 years by what's called the victory of the brigadiers. Uh, so many former Confederate officers are elected to Congress. And for the next 25 years, we have five presidential elections in a row in which nobody gets 50 percent of the vote. And two of those five elections, the winner of the Electoral College comes up short in the popular vote in large measure because the black Republican vote in the South is being wiped out on a scale that is impossible for the modern mind to comprehend. Think about this. In 1896, three states in the South a majority of the eligible voters are black men who are overwhelmingly Republican because of the Civil War. Sixty percent in Mississippi. And the best that, that William McKinley can get in any of those three states, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina, is Louisiana. In Mississippi, he gets six percent of the vote. Think about that. You know, more than half the eligible voters in the state are being kept from the polls by, by violence and, and uh, discrimination. And uh, anyway, it's and, and we have two years with Republican president, House and Senate, two years with a Democratic president, House and Senate, and 20 years of divided government in which they hate each other's guts. They're still fighting the Civil War. You go read the congressional record, and they are saying the most vicious and nasty things about each other, and virtually nothing gets done unless there is an outside force that impels the Congress and the government to finally act. There's a, there, you know, uh, Garfield is killed by a deranged office seeker, so we have the Pendleton Act which is the first beginning of civil service reform. Republican and Democratic farmers, Democratic farmers in the South, Republican farmers in the Midwest are angered by the cost of sending their, their produce to market by high rail rates. So we get the formation of the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, first regulation of railroads with the, with the federal agency to oversee the, the rate setting. But otherwise, nothing gets done because they hate each other. And uh, the politics is just astonishing. And you look at today and say, well, at least if we hate each other, it wasn't because we went out and killed 600,000 of each other. You were born in 1950. You've been in politics all your life. Have you ever hated your opponent? No, uh, I haven't. Uh, You know, you had strong emotions and you wanted to beat them. but, But one of the things today is, is that, both parties, this 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 is a troubling sign to me. Used to be that you'd say I'm I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, and I'm 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 that because of you know great things that my party has done or wants to do. Now it is I hate those bastards over there on the other side, and it's it, that that ain't a healthy place for either party to be, uh, because it, you know and to some degree it's because they're victims of their own success. Think about the great things that the Republican and Democratic Party stood for over the last 40 or 50 years. And, you know, the Democratic Party became the party of civil rights, of the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 64, in that they were helped by Republicans. But the Republican Party was the party of limited government, beat the communists, you know, beat the Soviet Union, strengthen our military, grow our economy. And, you know, we, we the Democratic Party was the party of, you know, uh, civil rights and of of uh, equal opportunity and of sexual freedom and uh, abortion rights. And, you know, as parties, we've achieved, each of the parties have achieved a great deal of their agenda or have been stymied in certain elements by the intransigence of the other party. And But they were both running out of, out of, out of ideas and, and energy. 
You would have been 15 years old in 1965. What do you remember? Were you involved in politics then? I know you were president of the student uh, body, I think, at your high school. Well, I was chairman. Of the, I was president of the student council, which means I was a second vice president. Uh, I, I wasn't yet that. that uh, actually, my first campaign is 1960. I was nine years old. I got a Nixon bumper sticker. I put it on the wire basket on the front of my bicycle and rode it up and down the street in Arvada, Colorado, hoping to, by demonstration of my support for Nixon, to garner votes for him in the key battleground. And uh, unfortunately, the little Catholic girl across the street who had about 20 pounds and six inches on me pulled me off the bicycle, put me down on the sidewalk, and wailed the heck out of me. She was for Kennedy. And uh, uh, since then, I've, I've, I've... I've never enjoyed winning as much as I hated losing. Well, back in those days, though, when you were just dipping into the political world, what's, you, what's the first memory you have of where you thought things were a mess, they were divided, they were, people were angry? Well, in 1967 and 68, I, I was in high school. I had a wonderful teacher, like many people. I've, I've benefited from having a, uh, a, a very terrific teacher, though I didn't know it at the time, Eldon Tolman. And Mr. Tolman took our class in 1968, uh, got us up early, put us on the bus, and took us to the Mormon Tabernacle in downtown Salt Lake. And we saw Richard Nixon, Hubert Humphrey, and George Wallace speak at the Mormon Tabernacle. People forget Utah back then was a battleground state. Uh, It had a Democrat governor, Democrat senators, and... uh, it uh, it was a battleground. This is where Hubert Humphrey made his famous speech in October of 1968, breaking with Lyndon Johnson on the war in Vietnam. But, I, you know, I remember uh, sitting in that giant auditorium, and we were up up close because he got us, Mr. Tolman got us there early in the day and got us great seats right towards the front and uh, saw Nixon up close. I, I was horrified by George Wallace when he started talking about you know, hippies laying down in front of his limousine. That'd be the last car they did. And I mean, the crowd cheering and, and anger and agreement. And uh, and Hubert Humphrey looking uh, looking like he was already beaten. Uh, and Nixon, you know, controlled, mechanical, but, you know, with a, with a message. And, uh, but uh, yeah, it, but the country was divided. I mean, think about it. We, you know, the summer of 67, the, the long, hot summer, 163 cities go up in flames. In April of 1968, Martin Luther King is brutally assassinated in Memphis. And within hours, more than 130 cities uh, are racked by violence and 47 Americans die uh, in those riots. Uh, and two months later, you know, Robert Kennedy is assassinated in Los Angeles. I mean, the country looked like it was coming apart. As I was working on my piece, uh, you know, I, I went back and, and over the violence of the era, 1970, a couple of kids were killed at Kent State University, uh, and protests broke out on 350 campuses with uh, an involve, involving an estimated 2 million people protesting the war in Vietnam and the death of these students at Kent State. And 10,000 people were in uh, Grand Park in 1968 trying to shut down the Democratic Convention. And four years later, they tried to do it when the Republicans met at Miami Beach. But the number that really got me was in 1971 and 1972, in an 18-month period, there were 2,500 domestic bombings in the United States. 
mean, talk about the country feeling like it was coming apart. And this went on for years. Two presidents are, are driven from office, one over an unpopular war and the other one uh, over a second-rate burglary. And the country looked like it was coming apart. Do you remember how you reacted during those years? Well, you know, to some degree, I was lucky because I was in Utah, which was like Utah in 1968 was like America in 1952. And, uh, you know, so we were sheltered from much of it, but I but I observed it as a distance. But, yeah, I felt like the country was coming apart. And then when I, you know, I moved into Washington, D.C. in 1971 to become the executive director of the College Republicans at the National Committee at the age of 20. And, um and, and it was like a different place. I mean, the, the, the quiet, the placid waters of Utah were now, you know, uh, flaming riots in downtown District of Columbia and anger over the war and anger over Nixon and anger over, you know, the, the course of the country. And it was eye opening. Where do you put this era in the context of history? Well, this is the purpose, the point of my, my piece in The Wall Street Journal was to say we've had it. We've had it bad before, and in many cases, it's been worse. I mean, look, we are angry today, and January sixth is a stain on our on our uh, on on our country. But the political violence of the sixties and seventies was worse. The nineteen thirties, one out of every four Americans out of work, and the growth of populism on the left and right. On the left, we see the populism of Huey Long, every man a king, expropriation of wealth. Uh, you know, authoritarianism uh, as governor of the state of Louisiana. And then we see populism on the right in the form of Father Coughlin, who's broadcasting from a radio station in Detroit and reaching the country and blaming America's economic difficulties on the bankers of New York and the Jews and virulently anti-Semitic. And um, the country, you know, uh, historians who've studied the area and some of whom lived through the era uh, point out how uh, angry and rough and divided the country was with uh, labor strikes and uh, and uh, public demonstrations, particularly in the late 1930s, that, that uh, made it look like the country was coming apart. The have, Gilded Age, which I, I mentioned uh, yeah, as well. You have a section in your piece, which I found very interesting, about what well, you mentioned William McKinley when he won by eight votes when he was in the House of Representatives and then got tossed out. Explain that. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, this, you know, remember a couple of years ago, the, there was Mariana Meeks who won election in Iowa by seven votes. And briefly, there was discussion by the Democrats, should we investigate that and see if that really was the case? And then they dropped it. And they dropped it because, as you remember, in the late, in the 80s, I think it was 82 or 84, there was the bloody uh, eighth in Indiana where the Republican was ahead on election day, and then there was a, there were recounts and investigation by Congress, and Congress kicked out the Republican and replaced him with the Democrat, and it poisoned the well for a couple of years in Congress. And there were still people around, and in, in, uh, a couple of years ago, in, on the Democratic side, who said, you know, that didn't work out too well. Let's let that leave it in the hands of Iowa to decide. Well, in the Gilded Age, starting in 1874. It was so closely contested in Congress that the majority party would would find somebody who won election by in the minority by a slim number of votes, phony up an election challenge and kick them out. And this happened at 62 times, 62 times. And both parties did it. So in 1874, the Democrats took control for the first time in 18 years and they started doing it. 
And when the Republicans got back in control, they retaliated. And so McKinley wins in 1882 in a a swing district in Ohio. He wins by eight votes, and the Democrats kick him out. Now, the only unusual thing about it was that seven leading Democrats, including the former Democratic Speaker of the House, voted to retain him as a mark of respect. But there was no evidence that it was uh, that the election was stolen, but it was close, and so they were going to get him. This goes on until 1904. And in 1904, the Republican majority, which is huge, goes after a Democratic congressman named Sofer from Colorado, and uh, John Sofer, and, and they, because there are 26 precincts or so that, uh, that uh, are where shenanigans went on, and so they investigate it. And the report comes back, and Sofer stands up on the floor and says, I have paid close attention to the uh, efforts of the investigating committee, and I find ample evidence that members of my party engaged in fraud and deceit in 26 or 29 precincts, whatever it was, and I am convinced that uh, I was elected by illicit means, and I ask you to join me in voting to remove me, to expel me from the House and replace me with my Republican opponent. And that's what it took to break... The, you know, to break the fever. And he gets elected governor and U.S. senator running on the slogan later of Honest John. But, you know, think about it. Sixty-two times this happens. It happens with great regularity. And the only question is, how long does it take the majority party to phony up the election challenge and go through the motions to arrive at, at a chance to inject a member of the minority party? That's how broken it was. In your experience in politics, what's the rottenest trick anybody ever used? Well, I think this this is this is close to it, but <laughs> but but there's something that goes on from this because Congress is so narrowly divided. What would happen is is that the minority party, the Democrats, starting this starts in 1890, uh, excuse me, uh, 1888, the Republicans take the House, the Senate, and the and the White House, but their margin in the U.S. House is very narrow. Uh, they have it by four. And so what happens is, is that the Democrats, if, you know, back then, you know, they, 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 they were civilized. They swore everybody in in March. They sent them home during the summer because there's no air conditioning in Washington. They brought them back in October and November, and they began to see, to, to vote in the fall. But, you know, people are, you know, with a narrow margin, four votes, you know, somebody may be sick, somebody may be called away on business, somebody may be at home uh, in their district. So what would happen is every time the Republicans lacked an absolute majority, the Democrats would vote, and then they would immediately stand up and say, um, Mr. Speaker, we don't believe there's a quorum president. We call for a roll call. They'd call the roll call, and no Democrat would answer. And so they'd come up with uh, uh, the Republicans would win the vote, but they wouldn't have an absolute majority of the House. So this was called a disappearing quorum. And it kept the House from voting, from acting. They'd, they'd vote on something, and it wouldn't, it, you know, there there wouldn't be a hundred, you know, there wouldn't be a hundred and sixty-eight Republicans on the floor, and they didn't count. And this went on for months. Finally, in January of eighteen ninety, the Speaker Thomas Brackett Reed, who's about six foot three inches tall, looks sort of like a bowling pin with a walrus mustache painted on him, erudite, tough, uh, really, you know, able, um, decides he's had enough. So he calls up a vote, and the vote is on expelling a West Virginia Democrat who'd won re-election by 50 votes, and re, uh, or not, I'm sorry, not, not 50 votes, by 12 votes, because the governor of the state interpreted a precinct that voted two votes 
and it was T-E-O is what that was written in as the vote. He interpreted that as 12. So it made the went the, the Democrat went from uh, losing by five to the Republican to winning by seven. And so they they have a, a, a report to expel him and they had the vote. And so they, they, they call the vote. The Republicans narrowly prevail. Democrats demand a roll call and then don't answer the quorum. And they're not they're not just enough Republicans missing that, that, that it lacks a quorum. So at that point, Reed, the speaker, says the chair directs the clerk to show, to record the following names of members present and refusing to vote and calls out the names of leading Democrats on the floor to establish a quorum. All hell breaks loose. They try running out of the chamber, but he's blocked the doors. Only one man makes makes good his escape to beats the crap out of the sergeant at arms and kicks out the the slats of the door with his cowboy boots and makes good his escape. The Democrat who had called for the roll call stands up and screams at Reed, I deny your right, Mr. Speaker, to count me present. And Reed's a very cool customer. He says, the chair's making a statement of the fact that the gentleman from Kentucky is present. Does he deny it? For three days, that day and two more days, the co- that Congress is angrily debating whether or not the Speaker has the right to do this. The second day of the debate, there's a there's one of my favorite figures of the Gilded Age, William Henry Howdy Martin. He's the Democratic congressman from Athens, Texas, six foot six inches tall, thin as a rail, mean as a snake, fought the entire Civil War with the famed Hood Brigade. He is a mean, honorary customer. Howdy Martin asked the fellow Democrats to, to uh, order him to remove uh, the speaker by force, and he said, I will do so by force forthwith. And Reed ignores him orders him out, you know, says he's out of order. And so Martin is so irritated, a Democrat from Indiana starts a, start, stands up and begins railing against the speaker. And Martin stands on the steps of the podium and, 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 and heckles the speaker of the House, you know, calling him a tyrant. And Reed doesn't take the bait. He completely ignores him. And finally, uh, uh, Martin, just, Martin takes, takes, uh, uh, takes his exit and is muttering to the Democrats, that Reed has no fight in him. And the next day, Martin shows up, takes a seat on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives, and uh, pulls out his 16-inch long Bowie knife and spends the day sharpening it on his boot sole in an attempt to menace the Speaker of the House. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but when Nancy Pelosi lost control, lost the majority in the House, I don't remember her doing that with her stilettos, but Hardy Martin is sitting there, you know, sharpening his, his, his Bowie knife in order to make... Reed uncomfortable, but Reed just completely ignores him. That's but it's it's bad. What did you find out about carrying guns and knives in the chamber back in the eighteen hundreds? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, there's a brilliant book uh, by Joanne Freeman, a great historian of the of the uh, antebellum era, called uh, "Field of Blood." Now we all knew, you know, I remember, you know, in school learning about the caning of Sumner, the senator from Massachusetts, by. Brooks, the congressman from uh, South Carolina. But this field of blood, it, it mines the uh, letters and archives and, li- and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, all the material that is, that is sitting there on that era. And it, what, what she, the picture she paints is starting in the 1830s, members of Congress routinely carried, uh, you know, knives, pistols, uh, brass knuckles, uh, and, you know, clubs. Uh, onto the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, and violence is routine, and threats of violence 
are ordinary. In fact, we even have a killing. In 1838, a Whig from Kentucky kills a Democrat congressman from, from uh, uh, Maine over the issue of corruption in the banking system. I mean, they, you know, they carried their they carried their disputes, uh, you know, on, onto the floor and and did so with violence. And you know, the people's uh, people's notes and and uh, diaries of the time are just filled with uh, with examples of this. And she's done a magnificent job of, of suggesting that that uh, the, you know the polarization and the breakdown of debate. Well, helped contribute to to ultimately, you know, brought us to the national government to to what she called the point of crisis, and uh, and and it goes on for for the better part of two and a half decades, twenty nearly a quarter of a century. What was your personal reaction to January the sixth? Horror, horror. I saw, I was sitting in a studio here in Austin on a Fox set and watching it, and it was horror. I mean, it's you look. I was there in the inaugural of 2000, and I saw those people lining the streets in Washington and hurling, you know, insults, invective, and projectiles at the motorcade. So I, you know, this was not, you know, not the first time that that there was inappropriate behavior. But the assault on the Capitol, in order to 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 obstruct a a constitutionally mandated receipt of the of the electoral college votes, it was horrifying to me. And the fact that the president of the United States sat there watching it for four hours without calling on the crowd that he had summoned uh, to action to re- to retreat from the Capitol was was a stain on our country and on his on, and on him. What do you think the impact has been since then on politics, on the town, the whole <clears throat> the thing that you're involved in every day? Well, it, it's it's added to the it's added to the disruption because you know. I, I run into these people who say, "Oh, these poor people who are in jail." Well, they they they, they engage in violence against law enforcement. They went they 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 broke through police lines. They they sprayed people with chemicals. They they tried to rip their weapons and their shields and their they, they poked at them with staves and flagpoles and you know beat them beat them with their hands and fists and whatever they could lay their hands on. And why we should as a country. We believe in law and order. We believe in the peaceful transfer of power. And for somebody to excuse the kind of behavior that went on that day, oh, they were just tourists walking, making their way through the Capitol, said one prominent uh, commentator. No, they weren't. Yeah, they, 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 in order to get into the Capitol, they had to break through police lines and break through doors and windows and, and assault police officers. And, uh, you know, the, the kinds of rhetoric that they used, the threats against members of Congress and against the police, you know, I saw one guy was just just uh, sentenced, and he was saying, "Grab their guns, grab their guns." I mean, th- th- these were not peaceful people, you know, engaging in peaceful protest. These were these were violent people, egged on by somebody who should have known better, and manipulated by by people in the crowd. And the and to make excuses for them is to to go against everything that we believe as a country. You cited in 1967, 35,000 people came to the Pentagon, and we had the military right. there, and all that. How much of that has gone on in our history? Well, it, it's it, it's happened. I mean, you know, you're you're right. I mean, to think about it. I mean, that was 35,000 people who came with one deliberate purpose, which was to you know take over the Pentagon and and in a sign of their opposition to the war in Vietnam. And thankfully, they didn't make it into the Pentagon. But on a January 6th, the mob that was much smaller did make it into the U.S. Capitol. And, uh, 
What about back you know, in, in the 1800s, back in the Gilded Age period? Were there this kind of demonstrations and breakthroughs and all that kind of thing? No, I think, no, there, 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 there is violence, uh, obviously. But, you know, Washington was a much smaller place back then. And it was not the, you know, it was not the center of our country that it has become in, in, in the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, it was the place that you, you know, you went away to, as, as a member of Congress, you went away to, to uh, work for six or eight or nine months out of every two years. And, uh, and uh, then most of them, particularly in the House, came home. But uh, you, you're, you live in Texas. <clears throat> I assume you don't stay there all the time, but you live in Texas and watch the world go by from there most of the time. Mm-hmm. Right. How much of the 1,100 people that have been charged in the January 6th event how much of that's getting through to the public, the number of people that are being, uh, you know, in court for three, four months, and then they get sent to prison for 22 years? Is that coming through? I think part of it is. But but look, we, we live in a, a world in which our source of in which we distrust most sources of news and, and where that is increasingly fragmented. So you do have people whose information flow is. It comes from 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 bias sources that say, "Oh, these people are uh, harmless. They're violating their First Amendment rights. These people had every right to be there and to make their voices heard, and they're being silenced because they of of uh, because they're not in conformity with the views of the deep state." When in reality, what those people were were yes, they were advocates of Donald J. Trump, but they're being they are being uh, uh, charged and sentenced. Uh, and found guilty and sentenced to jail for acts of violence that doesn't it, it didn't matter i mean it it, it it shouldn't matter to us who they were advocating on behalf of they advocated in an inappropriate way that is to say they engaged in violence in order to stop a constitutionally mandated joint session of the united states congress to receive the electoral votes of the state declaring who the next president was and you know if we have come to the point in our country where we re, where we accept that kind of violence against our great institutions and against our constitution, and allow people to—I mean, think about it—they had a they had a a, a a a noose hung on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. They were making threats about you know they wanted to get Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence, and uh, they were looking for any member of Congress. I mean, there's a reason why Josh Hawley is is caught on camera running his ass off down a quarter of the United States Senate, it's because he's scared to death they're after him, that they're going to be indiscriminate in their violence. So what's going to be the long-term impact on this country's politics because of what we're going through right now? Well, the point of my piece was we have been in, in bad places before, and something happens. The good common sense of the American people exerts itself. Our country is uh, 19 uh, in the late 1970s, where we, 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 the country elected a evangelical Christian from Georgia in 1976 with the hope that he would restore decency and morality. He was a good man, but he turned out to be weak and feckless. And in 1980, we, we took a bet and we voted for a you know B actor who'd been the successful governor of California with the hope that he'd be up to the job. And he was. And our country went in a different direction. You know, 1896, the politics of the Gilded Age is, is, is a should be healed by the election of a reform-minded Republican as president who is able to restore prosperity to the country and end the divisiveness of, of the Gilded Age. Here is a Union War veteran 
who is recommended for the Congressional Medal of Honor during the Civil War, starts the war as a sergeant, ends the war as a, as a major uh, because of three acts of unspeakable bravery. He's recommended for the Congressional Medal of Honor and refuses to have the application uh, pushed because he says, I was only doing my duty, and he heals the country. And the country moves forward into the 20th century. We have the election of Abraham Lincoln, who has to preside over a terrible war, but ends the disunity of the of of of, of the eighteen thirties, forties, and fifties. We have the election of Thomas Jefferson, which brings it. You know, people forget Thomas Jefferson's election. It ends in a tie in the Electoral College, and it takes until thirteen days before his uh, he's to be sworn in for the presidential contest to be ended in the middle of February, eighteen o one. And yet he goes on to become a successful president and ushers in decades of prosperity and growth for for America. So my point is, it's broken today. No ifs, ands, or buts. But it's been broken before. And what happens is eventually the American people say, you know what? Enough is enough. Our country is bigger and better and deserves better than this. And we get it. Back to the Jefferson election. You do spend time in your piece on that where you say it ended up 73-73 in the Electoral College, and that wasn't the man he was running against. Explain that. Yeah. Yeah. So back in that day, you voted for two people. And the idea was you voted for the presidential candidate, and then you voted for his running mate. But a couple of the people that were were in your camp were supposed to throw away their votes. Uh, and, and, And in 1801, the running mate of Thomas Jefferson is Aaron Burr. And, you know, Burr is supposed to tell a couple of the New Yorkers, don't 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 vote for me for president. Uh, don't vote for me. Throw your vote away, because that way Jefferson will have more votes. Jefferson writes a letter to his son in law. I love Jefferson's letters to his son in law because he pours. He tells him all the secrets. He writes a letter to him in, in November. The Electoral College is meeting early December. And he says, you know, some, the Georgia, they're going to throw away some votes. So it'll be, you know, me in front and Burr in second place. Uh-uh. Nobody throws away their vote. And so that's 7373, uh, and the runner-up is is uh is is John Adams. Uh but you know, Burr is sitting there saying, Oh, well, it's a tie. It has to go to the House of Representatives. Each state has one vote. The Congress is dominated. The outgoing Congress, the lame ducks, are Federalists. Maybe I can cut a deal. And so when they meet on February eleventh in a blinding snowstorm, uh it, it ends up they they have a vote. And Maryland and South Carolina are deadlocked, as is Vermont, but it is a tie between Burr and uh, and excuse me, uh, uh, Burr and Jefferson. Uh, and this goes on for you know, they vote twenty seven times. I love there's a wonderful diarist of the era, and she writes in her diary the report that. Uh, they voted 27 times through the night. Every hour, they would wake them up. They were sleeping on tables. They were, you know, sleeping in chairs. They had their nightcaps on. They were in blank, wrapped in blankets. One, one, the, the Maryland is deadlocked because the, the, there are four Democrats and four Federalists, but one of the Democrats is thought to be nearing death, uh, very ill. He insists upon being carried on a stretcher two miles through the snowbound streets of Washington, D.C., in the midst of a blizzard and installed in a committee room so that they can wheel them out to vote every hour on the hour. So they vote 27 times and nothing, you know, there ain't any resolution. They vote one day, one time, mostly one time a day for five more days. And on the, on, on the, the, the stalemate is finally broken by George Baird of Delaware, a Federalist. 
who's gotten a letter earlier from Alexander Hamilton, of all people. And Hamilton says, I, I, I know them both, and I hate them both. But at least Jefferson has character, and Burr has none. Burr is, quote, a man of extreme and irregular ambition. And he says, if Federalists make Burr president, then Federalists, quote, must share in the blame and disgrace that is sure to follow. So finally, Baird says, okay, Alexander has some good good, good uh, advice here. So he says, I'm, I'm, I'm the only congressman from Delaware. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going to get my colleague from, from Vermont to throw in the towel because there are two of them, a Federalist and a Democrat. If the Federalist walks, Vermont will fall into Jefferson's camp. And I'm going to tell my boys from South Carolina and and Maryland, boys, we've done all we can do. We got a deal that he's going to build. He's going to do help the Navy, and he's going to keep our pals in office. And so, throw it in, make him president, and we'll go home. And on the thirty seventh ballot, Thomas Jefferson is elected uh, president of the United States with ten votes, ten states, and uh, and uh, on the thirty seventh ballot, and that's incidentally twenty one ballots more than it took to elect Speaker McCarthy. Uh, so he sworn his, in as president 15 days later on March 4th of 1801. And as you recall, Aaron Burr, his vice president, kills Alexander Hamilton in 1804 in a duel. So it's, it's you know, politics was wild back then. What kind of reaction have you gotten to this piece in the journal? Uh, I've gotten more email on this piece than any other piece that I've done, except the one I wrote on the death of my dog a uh, little bit. So uh, and, and and I've gotten some very begrudging. You know, I don't. I probably don't agree with a single thing you have to say about politics, except I really enjoyed your your piece on our country being divided. So, I mean, uh, what part of this piece do you sense that they really uh, attracts them? Just the volume of it. Just that that there was there. We have gone through so many periods like this. I think the first thing people do is they realize, particularly if they've. That, that about the 60s and 70s, because m- many of them either lived through it or have heard it's close enough that they've heard about it. But just the idea of the Gilded Age, the, 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 that the, the, you know, the 1850s was not just the 1850s and the 1840s and most of the 1830s, the, the first stolen election, 1824, you know, d- d- Andrew Jackson spends four years saying the election was stolen from me. Thomas Jefferson, this revered figure, he was so he was so controversial. It ends in a time the Electoral College and his vice president is trying to sneak the presidency from him. I mean, people is like, wow, I, I had forgotten that we were messed up as as much as we were, and 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 I didn't know that we were as messed up as we were as 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 the country was in the Gilded Age and the and the antebellum era. You've been a political advisor, presidential advisor for all the, through these years. How much of all of this has come as a result of you studying history? And if you if you have studied history, where where have you gone for most of it? What's the most uh, history the, that you've been attracted to? Yeah, well, I came to politics through history. I've, I've, the first book I, I ever can remember reading, I still have a, a book called "Great Moments in History." I, I read it like in the second or third grade. It's got the top of the two thirds of the top two thirds of each page is a crude drawing of the moment. And the bottom third is a description of the, of, of you know, of what that moment was about. And so I've always loved history. And so I came to politics because uh, politics is such an integral part of America's history. What I really love, and I, I, I got a cho- chance to do this uh, a lot in my book on McKinley, was go to the original material, the original source material, 
to go to the diaries and to go to the newspaper accounts and to go to the letters and to go to the to the you know to the government you know to the do- documents that are circulated inside our government and uh, I particularly found that uh, uh, true in, in in my McKinley book but uh, in in researching this the, the, the material here uh, it just it's it's there's a richness in going to the to the original sources and uh you know like one of the great books is a book by uh which is a memoir bad a, a ri- actually badly written memoir by speaker joe cannon one of the house office buildings is named after him and he had a longtime assistant who was also a journalist and uh cannon would tell him stories and he would write them down and so for the for the latter part of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century, these stories are, you, you, you don't read them in a newspaper, but here's a, here's speaker Cannon uh, telling his experiences of the Congress over a period of decades to his loyal Lieutenant who turns it into a book and, you know, talk about getting it from the horse's mouth. What period of history interests you the most besides the Gilded Age? Civil War. And how much have you studied it, and what's the most effective way to study the Civil War? Well, there's so much great writing on it. Uh, you know, as a child, I, you know, I was nine years old when we came to the centennial. So you had Bruce Catton. Uh, you know, you had, uh, you know, lots of lots of books out during that five-year period that were just terrific, and I, I, I absorbed every bit of them that I could. But... Uh, you know, I try and read about the lives of the individuals. I'm, I'm less, you know, I'm interested in, you know, the Battle of Fredericksburg or the Battle of Gettysburg, but I'm really interested in the players because the players help you show, help show not only the big moments, but they also show the, the personalities and the thoughts and actions that for good or for ill decided the outcome of the Civil War. As you know, FDR ran four times and won four times big. 400 and some electoral votes almost all four of those what did what, what have you ever studied much of him and why was he that successful well i have studied him i don't claim to be the fdr expert but one of the things that gets me is that fdr is a complicated figure he is a he is how how he kept himself together because he's constantly pitting people against each other inside his administration and he's also somewhat duplicitous Several people are working on the same thing without knowing that, the, that somebody else is working on it. Or somebody is, somebody is assigned to do something without knowing that really this is a way for him to get rid of them. And, uh, and he, but he is an unbelievable picker of talent. Uh, he finds these young, mostly young men, uh, many of them well-educated, many of them Jewish, uh, who, who are not you know, part of the end party of the Democratic Party, and assigns them major responsibilities that shape history, that make winning the war possible, that make recovery from the depression possible. So I, I see him as a consummate uh, chess player. He's he's constantly thinking ahead, uh, and 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 allowing himself to be used in sometimes, and 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 using other people in other times. Uh, but a masterful politician. How much did you study Andrew Jackson for this column? Uh, a lot. You know, I, 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 I uh, uh, Robert Remini, who was the great uh, historian of Congress, was also a great historian of Jackson and became a friend when I was at the White House and wrote a terrific uh, four-volume set on him. And then 
uh, other friends have done uh, uh, books on him. A wonderful historian here in Austin, Bill Brand, H.W. Brand, has written a wonderful one. And then, of course, John Meacham wrote a terrific biography of, of Jackson. So I've absorbed Jackson. He is one of the more interesting characters in our history because I'm not certain how well he would do today because he is an angry man. You know, he is, his whole life is is uh, marked by violence and rage. And, um, you know, he, he is slashed by a British sword at the age of 17 in North Carolina uh, during the Revolutionary War. He is a man of, of, of uh, great violence and great anger. I mean, it's uh, I, I'm not certain how well he would do today, but he was the People's Tribune, and he is the man who busts up the elite of American politics by his election in 1828. You know, he, it was, I, they say it was a uh, like hundred duels. But yeah. he was Jerry shot. carried bullets in his body to yeah. until he died. And he was tried. They tried to assassinate. A guy tried to assassinate him when he was president up in the Capitol, yeah. and he yeah. beat and he beat him over the head with his cane or whatever he had with yeah. him. Yeah. But well, why was he so angry? Did did you do you have any sense on that? And well, you know, he had a rough life. I mean, you know, he he he, he lost his family. Uh, he grew up on the frontier. Uh, he the, 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 he felt that his, the, he felt that the love of his life, his wife, was killed by uh, uh, was killed by the uh, angst and anger and agony that she suffered at the hands of his political opponents, uh, who you know uh, attacked her for not being uh, you know for being a, a divorcee and, and maybe even having married without having finalized the divorce. I mean, he felt he felt ill treated by. Uh, the, the them's that were in power, and uh, you know he felt second guessed when he is involved in the wars again, the Seminole Indian Wars against uh, in Florida. He believes that he is undermined by the people above him in the chain of command. I mean, uh, the, he just strikes me as a, a man who was uh, quick to take offense and always looking for for somebody to be angry at. Are you? Excuse me. Are you advising anyone today in politics on how to run a campaign? Well, I teach a class at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, so I guess I'm advising some future campaign managers. Uh, What's the class but, like? What do you teach? Well, it's the Modern American Presidential Campaign, and uh, I have fifty some odd honor students, and uh, the uh, we meet uh, on a Monday. Uh, for two hours. I give a lecture on the topic of the week for an hour, and then two students interview somebody uh, for the for the class. Uh, and then on Wednesday, they meet with my uh, teaching assistants and discuss the problem for the week. On Monday night, they're given a problem drawn from a real campaign that has to do with the topic of the week, like strategy or communications or fundraising. And by Sunday, they have to write a memo of no more than 750 words no more than 750 words because writing shorter is harder than writing longer, but they have to write a memo on to somebody suggesting how to solve the problem. And uh, the first week we've traditionally had is devoted to strategy. And we have James Carvel and Mary Matlin who were interviewed. The second week is on messaging and it's David Axelrod. Uh, we've been lucky enough to have uh, a guy talk on organization the third week um, named James A. Baker III. I, I had uh, the, the first year I had two be wonderful students. I mean, beautiful writers, really smart young guys. And they interviewed Baker. And Baker said, I'm, I'm 93. 
So I'm not going to do this live. We'll do this so that so that if I make mistakes, you can edit it out. So we'll do it the you know the the weekend before, and I'm not going to do it for an hour. I'm going to do it for 30 minutes. And these two young guys interviewed him, and Baker did it for 55 minutes. <laughs> and 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 at one point in it, he turns to his assistant off camera and says, "Now it was you know Bob Smith, right? You know." And the guy says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah it is, Mr. Secretary." So he's just you know on it, on it, just terrific. These two little guys interviewed interviewed Baker, and at the end of it, I said, "You know, boys, over the last 40 years, there have been a lot of journalists." Uh, interview Baker, but only probably about a dozen who've interviewed James A. Baker the third for for an, nearly an hour, and you're two of them. And I mean, it was like, but anyway, it's a great. And I have Democrat and Republicans come and talk about data and fundraising and media and uh, uh, polling, and uh, I've tried to end with uh, with uh, uh, Jim Messina and uh, and uh, Ken Melman talking about what it's like to be the campaign manager in the last 30 days of presidential campaign. And, uh, you know, I have, I have obviously every Republican and conservative who can sign up for the class does, but I also have a lot of Democrats. And I think they, I, I think they believe that I am, a, you know, the, the myth. And so they expect the devil to be in charge of the class. So I had one kid, the first, the first time I taught it, who'd show up in his Pete Buttigieg so he had an infinite number of Pete Buttigieg T-shirts of various colors and shapes and sizes, and he would wear them to the class. And finally, I said to him, "I said, I really like that you're wearing your colors. You got to keep doing that." And I think he was like, "I think he was wearing them so that he could sort of irritate me." And it was like, "Well, Professor Rove, you know, sort of told me to keep wearing my colors." So, anyway, has the fun. man that did, called you the architect you ever come to one of your classes? George W. Uh, no, no, but but let me just say that uh, he retains his political interests. So, like today, uh, let's see here. He uh, the te- the first text message of the morning came in at seven thirty two a.m., <laughs> which is sort of late because sometimes he starts texting me about six thirty with his political uh, questions of the day. Is this th- we're recording this on a Monday? Is this a day of class? No, I'm not teaching this semester. I teach in the spring. Because I was going to ask you what you would be talking about today. But if you had a group of, together today and and the, the, the discussion was about this upcoming election and you were trying to advise a candidate on how to present themselves, what kind of things would you tell them right now? Well, first of all, during the class we talk about the most important thing in a presidential campaign is authenticity. It's it's. Because, you know, you can't hide in this. There's so much attention. It's like the emperor's new clothes, you know, the old story, the childhood story. They're going to see you as you are at the end of the parade. So try and figure out how they're going to see you and who you really are and try and be your best at that. The second thing is, is that people don't necessarily need to agree with you on everything, but they want to know what the heck makes you tick and what you're going to try and do. So don't be doing calculations of, of I need to say this in order to get this group and I need to be to the right or the left of my party's candidate on this be who you are because uh, who you are and how you, it'll come across that, that, that you care about this uh, and when Bush ran for I tell, I tell this story often in the class when Bush ran for governor of Texas he talked about four issues education reform uh, welfare reform juvenile justice reform and tort reform, liability reform, ending junk lawsuits. Well, nobody really cared about juvenile justice reform. 
It was nowhere on the list of important issues. But he cared so passionately about it that when he talked about it, people learned about him, that he had a big heart, that his values were, we have to provide tough love to these kids if we want to save their lives. Uh, It is better. We can't discard them. We've got to find if they get thrown out of their school for for bad behavior, we need to put them in a school with other bad behaviors so that they they, they have one more shot at life. And people listened to him and said, my God, I've learned a lot about him. And so similarly, when you're running for president, it, you know, uh, if you say something, may not be at the top of people's list of, of, of things they want a president to do, but if they learn something about you that's important about you, you know, Nikki Haley, I, you know, this, this, this thing of saying, I think we ought to have cognitive tests of our presidents. We ought, to, we ought to know if they're up to the job. It's not the centerpiece of her campaign. But people learn from that that she's willing to say something tough that's hard, a hard truth. And it also says this woman is the new generation, a rising generation. The, 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 the message of that is I don't think these two guys, 78 and 82, who will be 78 and 82, are up to the job and that it's good for our country. It allows her to say something about herself by talking about an issue. So, you know, they better figure out who they're for. I mean, what they're for and, to, and be talking about it. People are people are interested, particularly on the Republican side of who are you and what are you all about? That's why Haley in between the uh, between before and after the first debate jumped the most on two measures. Her favorables jumped more than anybody else. The net favorables, favorables up, unfavorables down. The net, she was the biggest jump. And more importantly, she had the biggest jump on I'm open to considering voting for her. Because you got to be open to voting for them before they actually vote for them. Going to let you go in a second, but I want to ask you about your own education. Uh, I read a little bit about where you went and jumped around and all that stuff. Did you ever yeah. get a degree? No, I, I went to the University of Utah, University of Maryland College Park, George Mason University, University of Houston, University of Texas, and never got my degree. And uh, uh, I was in the last generation that could do something that stupid. So don't anybody try and repeat that. But so many people, you, in, you know, that have been successful didn't get a college degree. Yeah. You're, you're teaching oh, yeah. now. What's the value today? It's so expensive. Yeah. Well, uh, that's right. That's the second question. But, I, you know, and I, I am a huge proponent of community colleges and of vocational education. I have a friend who ran, a, a, of all things, a private junior college in Borger, Texas, and he was hired away by a junior college in, uh, in in the Flint Hills of Kansas. And the reason was he perfected a um, vocational education program at the junior college for agriculture and included a welding program where every single w- members of the welding program graduating class, after two years of junior college education, were being offered jobs in the oil patch in Texas and North Dakota, starting at $110,000 a year. We have a we have a high school in far Texas that says, okay, maybe you don't want to go to college, but maybe you should think about getting your CDL driving license for trucks. And so these kids graduate with all the other things that you're supposed to graduate with high school with, but also they take a, they take courses in driving and truck driving and get a CDL license. So they graduate at the age of 18 or 19 and can go to work in the oil patch driving a, a, a truck for 100k a year. Now, you can take some kid from a poor family in the lower Rio Grande Valley and say to him, you can be successful in life and start off with 100k a year driving a, driving a truck, uh, you know, fracking sand or oil field or whatever. 
and you're 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 raising the opportunity and the the, the hope and aspirations of a lot of people. The column you wrote is from Saturday Sunday edition of the Wall Street Journal, August twenty sixth and twenty seventh, two thousand twenty three, and the headline is "America is often a divided nation." Carl Rove, thank you so much for talking us through this. Yeah, would you bet? Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to Book Notes Plus. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about Books That Shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.